Blog Talk Radio. Hello, we're back with a new episode of the AJ Bruno Show. I'm going to try to do these somewhat more frequently, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but for this episode, I'm joined today by Sheena Greitens. She's a professor and scholar on authoritarian regimes and national security issues. Hello, and uh, it's nice to talk to you. Great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Sure. So uh, to get into your background a bit first, uh, I read that you always wanted to be involved in national security. Uh, how did you first get interested in this path, and was there any particular inspiration for that? Yeah, sure. You know, that's a great uh, great question. I started college in um, September of 2001, and I actually didn't intend to study global politics or national security at all. Um, I was planning to do some different stuff, although I wasn't 100% sure what as a college freshman. Um, but I started college three weeks after the attacks of September 11th, and I actually ended up driving rather than flying because all of the planes were grounded. I was going from Washington State to California. Um, and so um, that prompted a whole series of questions about what had just happened in the world such that, you know, America, which I thought of at the time, you know, the sole superpower, um, the global leader, um, how it was that 19 men with box cutters had inflicted such incredible harm on American national security and American lives. And so that really prompted a whole set of investigations and taking classes and going to events on campus um, and just trying to figure out, you know, what, what the world was like. Um, and at the same time, I had a sister who was adopted from Korea um, who had come when I was very young. And, um, and so I was really interested in the part of the world that she had come from and what her life might have been like if she had been raised in Korea instead of the United States. And so I gravitated in many cases toward classes on the Asia Pacific. Um, and that's a place where there are acute national security challenges. There's a, a lot that's gone right in the last couple of decades in terms of democratization and economic prosperity. Um, but there are also real national security challenges remaining for the United States and its partners and allies. And so I, I just I got more and more interested in doing that work and um, and my career unfolded from there. But those two two pieces were really uh, the genesis of a lot of my interest. So you specialize in East Asia in particular. Was it the family connection that wanted you to go into that? Uh, in particular, or was there something um, that intrigued you in particular about that region that, that made you want to specialize in that? Well, originally it, it, it was um, motivated by interest in um, my family's history via my, my sister's adoption from Korea. Um, but then I really became interested in the national security challenges that the Asia Pacific and now the Indo Pacific present to the United States. Um, the, you know, how to think about the growing um, power and influence of the Chinese political system, um, how the United States should manage its relationships with um, you know, places like Taiwan, Korea. Australia, New Zealand, Japan, um, the Philippines, and um, I, you know, I just found that I was interested in a whole set of questions related to 
you know, what the risks were to the United States, how we protect the United States and the countries it's allied with from those risks and threats. Um, and um, there's always been more questions to answer and more challenges to address. So, so in undergraduate, when I was when I was an undergraduate, I started um, with an interest in in the challenges posed by North Korea and its involvement in drug smuggling and counterfeiting of U.S. currency and a whole range of illicit activities um, that were both generating money for this dictatorial repressive regime and also potentially could be used to sell or export nuclear material. Um, and so that that was the first research projects that I was really interested in, you know, what were the stakes of, of what North Korea is doing and, and what do we do about it? Um, but it, it's impossible now to think about American national security in the Indo-Pacific without, without grappling with China. And so I, I also started to take um, Chinese language classes, spent some time in China for language study, and eventually decided to write a, a dissertation about um, how authoritarian regimes in Asia worked during the Cold War, um, which took me to Taiwan, South Korea, and the Philippines, as well as, as to China. Um, there's just always been a lot of work to do and not enough hours in the day to, to try to keep up with the, the challenges that the United States faces. Um, so are you fluent in any of those languages or do you just have like an understanding, basic understanding? Um, yeah, I, ha I speak Mandarin, um, and I'm comfortable doing research, and whether it's interviews or, or reading. In fact, this morning I've been um, reading some material about um, Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign and the way that it's, it's purging the internal security forces and trying to um, you know, look at what's going on in that, in that anti-corruption campaign. Um, I, I also speak and read a little bit of Korean, um, but uh, but it's not as strong as my, my Chinese language skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the irony being the entire regime is corrupt there, but I guess he's the boss. So. Cor yeah, corruption uh, is is a is a systemic or endemic problem. Um, it's been interesting to see, you know, Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. Um, is tackling cases where we know corruption is a serious problem. There's a, a great new book out um, by a colleague of mine, Yuan Yuan Ang, um, and on that topic. Um, but, you know, anti-corruption campaigns are also commonly a tool of power consolidation um, in any uh, dictatorship, and um, that's certainly some of what we've been seeing in China and what Xi Jinping's been doing with this anti-corruption campaign. So it... it mm -hmm. It definitely works works on two purposes, two objectives, or two purposes at the same time. Sure. So going back to the sort of the genesis of all of this, um, where do you trace kind of the root of authoritarian regimes as we first, as we know them today? Where did those first originate? Um, you know, I think it's it's important to realize when we talk about dictatorship that globally it's actually been the norm for most of human history. Um, liberal democracy is uh, a minority, and it's a really important and valuable minority, but um, authoritarianism and not democracy has actually been the, the sort of the most common form of governance if you look at the whole span of human history. Um, and even today, there's a substantial part of the world 
um, in terms of the number of global citizens who live under non-democratic rule. Um, and many of the world's great powers, if you look at China and Russia in particular, um, are, are autocratic. Um, so, so I think it's important to think about that, that democracy is, is a positive you know, development away from um, a, a longstanding norm of, um, uh, of authoritarian government and that for a lot of human history, citizen interaction has been sort of centered around avoiding abuse at the hands of government. And that's, you know, my own understanding of and research on authoritarian politics um, I think gives me a, a different appreciation for the uniqueness and the value of liberal democracy. And so I, until this summer, I was teaching at the University of Missouri, which has a, a big research institute on American constitutional democracy. Um, and so my students often came in with a really good understanding of constitutional democracy. And I would jokingly say to them at the beginning, okay, like you've got, you, you, you've taken a lot of classes on constitutional democracy. You guys have a pretty good handle on that. Now let's talk about why it's important by looking at the alternatives. Um, so, so I think that's, you know, one of the main sort of philosophical values of, um, of studying authoritarianism um, in addition to the practical knowledge that we need to have today as we try to deal with countries like Russia and China and North Korea. Mm, sure. Although for most of these, I guess, more authoritarian regimes throughout history, you don't hear too much about something like a secret police. Is that more of a modern invention? And if so, why did that come about when it wasn't really something so prominent in the past? Well, you know, one of the things that was interesting about writing the, the first book that I wrote was that it, it, it was a hard topic to write about because, and secret police sometimes don't get a lot of attention because they are just that, they're, they're secret. Um, their records are not always open. Sometimes the records are destroyed in the process of democratization by outgoing security forces. Some places don't keep great records of it, the human rights violations and other activities that are engaged in because they don't want accountability. Um, and in a lot of cases, even in a democratization, um, sometimes the, if it's what we call a negotiated democratization, the security forces are sometimes able to figure out political ways to kind of protect themselves, even in the new democratic system. Um, and so if democratization is a long process, you don't, you can't, they're what we call spoilers. They're people who could interrupt or disrupt the process. And so sometimes, you know, in order to get partway toward democracy or democratization or to get the ball rolling, um, those folks are able to, to negotiate for some protection in the process. So the, the point is just that, you know, secret police are um, not talked about as much in part because um, there are all of these reasons why their activities are concealed and secret and, um, and not uh, transparent in the first place. And so part of what I was trying to do in the, the book was to go back to cases that now had fully democratized, where we can go back and look and get those records and say, okay, how did this work? Um, and what is the, the story that wasn't told at the time that now we can tell about how these organizations work? Um, I think doing that in a sort of Cold War history sense 
helps us know what to look for much better when we look at cases that are still dictatorships today. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of those dictatorships, um, so when we're talking about a regime like China and North Korea, how much of a distinction do you mean do you make between a country like China, which is maybe more described as authoritarian, and one like North Korea, which is more of a totalitarian uh, government? Oh, gosh, that's a great question, in part because um, they aren't static over time. And in some ways, they have moved in opposite directions. So one of the things that happened with North Korea, which you think of as the quintessential totalitarian regime, um, is that when the famine hit in the mid-1990s, citizens started to pursue free market activity, trade, smuggling, um, much of it technically illegal, but the state also didn't, and the North Korean regime didn't have the ability or the desire in some cases to, to prevent people from keeping themselves alive. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people did die, but many of those that survived were the, were the people who turned um, relatively you know, sooner to market activity. Um, and so what that did was actually create some space in these black markets or gray markets um, for citizens to operate outside of the totalitarian framework, or it created a little bit of space for them to maneuver privately within the totalitarian framework. Um, and so North Korea, you know, that, that model really weakened under bottom-up market pressure. Now, not all the way. Kim Jong-un has tried to, you know, sort of reassert regime power. Um, but there is some, you know, space even in a, a, a mostly totalitarian system for, um, for citizens to pursue market, market activity. Um, not enough, not reliably. Um, but, you know, that, that North Korea, if anything, kind of um, started to lose control in the 1990s. Now, what we've seen in, in China is a move in the opposite direction under Xi Jinping, where the party state has, you know, China um, in the reform and opening period launched in the late 70s by Deng Xiaoping, China did open up space. You know, consciously, deliberatively, um, for some market activity. Now, it was still market activity under the political direction and supervision of the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but what we've seen, uh, you know, China did have that that move um, toward what you know maybe what you described as a more authoritarian model. What we've seen under Xi Jinping is that the party state has really tightened control again. Um, and there's less space for, um, there's still capitalism, but it is, you know, capitalism with a very important sort of leadership role for the party state. And in many cases, um, you know, the space for citizens to kind of have their own lives outside of party view has been diminished. Um, so last week I testified at um, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom about the effect that China's surveillance state and the buildup of a massive surveillance state has had on even private religious life. Um, and that's just one example of where China is moving in a, uh, you know, um, a more, um, like in the direction of more regime control. So, you know, it's, it's um, 
there is a distinction, but the interesting thing is that, you know, a specific country or regime can actually change over time. Um, and so we can't necessarily assume that the way things were five years ago or, or 15 years ago is a, is a good representation of where they are today. I think when it comes to religion in particular, if China ever allowed Christianity to spread there the way it has in South Korea, I think that would be the end of their regime. So I think they know that and they try to prevent that. Is that your read on it too? Or? Well, my, my take is that um, organized religion um, and any sort of organization that the party can't manage and direct um, is to a certain extent seen as a threat. And there's just a report that China uh, hacked the, the Vatican ahead of a, a set of talks that are scheduled to take place soon. Um, and uh, what's interesting about that is that, you know, China, when it watched communism crumble in Eastern Europe, right, it had also just gone through the cataclysm and the crackdown of 1989 in China. And so they were really concerned that what was going on in 1989 in China would sell the demise of the Chinese Communist Party the same way that it it and you know saw the end of communism in, in Eastern Europe. And one of the things that they saw as a really you know important contributing factor was actually the role of the Catholic Church. Um, and you know the the role of the Pope John Paul II, who was Polish, his you know his leadership in particular in you know, the anti-communist struggle in Poland, um, but symbolically across, um, you know, Catholic populations in Europe. And so that, that's made them very, very wary of the Catholic Church in particular, but also um, of, you know, any religious organization that isn't carefully monitored by the party and ultimately accountable to it. And uh, China, of course, is obviously more in the news these days for very bad reasons. Uh, because of the fundamental dishonesty and kind of tightening of power with this regime, do you think if their government had been honest from the start, could we have avoided a global pandemic on this scale? And what sort of repercussions do you envision for China? And what do you think the government should face for being you know, responsible for what's going on? Well, there is a lot that I think many of us would like to know about what happened when the pandemic actually started. Um, and there are a lot of unanswered questions that remain about who knew what at what point and, you know, who could have issued um, warnings to whom. What we know, I think, is that there are two different types of transparency problems here. Um, one of them is a transparency problem within the Chinese political system itself, and one has to do with how transparent and forthcoming China was to the outside world. And I think both of those problems had an, an impact um, on the global spread of uh, the coronavirus um, around the world. Um, the issue within China is that, and this is very, very common in authoritarian or, or dictatorial regimes, many of them have pretty significant internal information problems. Nobody wants to be the person who sends bad news up the chain because the consequences can be unfair and incredibly severe. 
um, Saddam Hussein had a minister executed for suggesting that he managed the Iran-Iraq war differently at one point. Um, and so you learn pretty quickly that there are career costs and even, you know, costs to the safety of yourself and your family for, for saying, whoa, we got a problem here. And it's pretty clear that at the local level, um, the Public Security Bureau, for example, the, the police um, in Wuhan um, tried to silence some of the whistleblowers who were, um, with Dr. Lee, who were, were trying to warn their colleagues and warn people that, that this was a, a dangerous um, you know, virus that we were dealing with. Um, and then, so, so you know, that's, that's one set of questions, right? It, one of the problems with having an authoritarian regime the size of China is that, you know, if people at the bottom are trying to hide information because they're afraid of the consequences from the top, um, then it makes it really hard to solve problems. And some of those problems have consequences outside of China. Um, the other, you know, there's obviously then this other set of questions about what China could have told the WHO earlier and the clarity of the WHO's communication, um, which I, I, you know, I think we all recognize left something to be desired. Um, and, you know, so that's a sort of separate issue, um, but it's also, a, you know, a, a feature of, um, of the Chinese political system is this sort of dual lack of transparency. Um, and unfortunately, with something like public health, the consequences can very quickly spread beyond China's borders and won't be detected until, um, you know, until transmission in many cases has been, you know, has been seeded widely. Um, so I think it's really hard to say, given the number of unknowns about the virus, whether we could have prevented an outbreak outside China altogether. Um, there's a, you know, we've spent much of the last six months debating the fatality rate and the mechanisms of transmission, and science takes time to arrive at, um, you know, at a good answer to a lot of those questions. Um, so I think we'd have to know a little bit more about the science and I, I know there are people working really hard to try to answer those questions um, now. Um, so I don't know if we, if we can say that we could have prevented it, but certainly I think, you know, we could have, um, we meaning all sorts of people in all sorts of capacities all over the world, um, taken more steps to protect ourselves and our, our loved ones um, if we had had clearer information sooner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, though, I think obviously the responsibility has to be with their government because the two prevailing theories, of course, are either it came from that wet market or it escaped from a lab. And either way, if it was from a lab, they shouldn't have been you know, working on that to begin with. If it was from a wet market, I've seen videos of that place. It's disgusting and unsanitary, and those places should not even exist. So the fact that this is a virus which – you know, there's no reason it should even be around. It's a bit frustrating, well, to the least. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think that's the case that the administration has basically been making, which is that China is responsible for, you know, the impact of the coronavirus because of these features of its, its authoritarian political system. Um, so I, I think what you're saying is, is, a, is a different way of saying what the, the, you know, the many of the arguments that the administration has been um, been making. 
Yeah, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Um, so, in a different uh, kind of aspect of recent events, it seems like China is growing more emboldened and aggressive these days between their genocide against the Uyghurs, their crackdowns in Hong Kong, uh, these territorial claims they keep making in the South China Sea. Uh, where do you see this path heading? Yeah, that's been a, a striking change in um, Chinese foreign policy and um, in their approach to some of these global flashpoints. So, so it used to be that that one of these issues might be sort of front and center at any one point in time, um, but it is it is unusual if you look at China's engagement with the world since 1949 or certainly since, you know, again, reform and opening in the late 70s, it's really unusual to have this much sort of assertive or aggressive activity on this many fronts at the same time, right? So it's like the opposite of pick your battle. Um, We are seeing, you know, China has been engaged in land reclamation and, you know, asserting and implementing its claims in the South China Sea since around in 2012, 2013, I would probably date it to. Um, the land reclamation, I think, really picked up around 2014, 2015, um, where China's literally creating islands where none existed um, as a way of trying to change the facts on the ground in their favor. Um, and so that, you know, that assertiveness has been there for, you know, about five years now. Um, but but then, you know, we saw about two years after that a real escalation in China's. In China had had been pushing more assimilationist cultural policies, and it had been building up police forces and building up surveillance capacity in Xinjiang again, since probably around the time of the Beijing Olympics or around the time in the late 2000s when there was unrest in both Tibet and Xinjiang um, that that made the authorities really nervous. Um, But then in the spring of 2017, we see the the authorities in Xinjiang really escalate and go from this campaign of, you know, sort of, okay, we're going to build up security cameras and police forces to, nope, now we're going to go take a million people, which is a a pretty consistent figure you've seen estimated, and take a million people um, from Xinjiang and detain them in these, you know, forced re-education facilities um, where there are reports of pretty abysmal treatment. Um, And, you know, it's, we can talk about why they switched to this collective targeting of, of Uyghurs, um, but fundamentally, it's, there's this analogy that China uses of a political virus. And what that means, they, so it's, it's kind of the medicalization of security issues. And the reason that that's really dangerous is that the the logical implication in the metaphor is, okay, we immunize people. But immunization, if you think about it, um, you know, like taking your kids to get their shots before kindergarten or getting a flu shot, you're by definition getting a treatment before 
you show any symptoms. So if you, if you take that back to the political world, you are by definition targeting people for very coercive treatment before they've done anything that even by the regime's own definition is politically problematic. Um, mm. And I, I'm not saying I buy that, you know, the things they call politically problematic are in fact problematic. I, you know, things like free speech and religious practice are, are considered problematic. Um, and so, you know, one of the, but one of the problems is that when you use that logic, you're by definition targeting vast numbers of innocent people. Um, and that's really a shift we've seen under Xi Jinping. And very dangerous for human rights in China, but also for China's foreign policy as well. Sure, and uh, you could ignore those uh, sound notifications, by the way. We can still record over that. Um, so uh, to pivot more to uh, North Korea, um, we mentioned the administration before. Um, I'm a pretty strong conservative Republican. I think you have a Republican background too, but I don't agree with how uh, the government there has been treated. I think North Korea is the most, you know, totalitarian uh, regime in the world. They behave irrationally. Um, if it wasn't for all these missiles they have aimed at South Korea, I think we should take them out. But unfortunately, that would come at an enormous cost. Um, I, they can't be reasoned with them. They constantly lie and commit all sorts of terrible crimes against their own people. So how do you feel about kind of smiling with Kim Jong-un and you know, uh, having this extremely diplomatic uh, approach to him, which I don't think is really going to accomplish anything meaningful. Well, you know, my, my, um, so, so I've been a, an advocate for a pretty, um, pretty tough approach on North Korea, in particular on the illicit activities that you know, allow Kim Jong-un to, you know, party on a yacht and drive around in a fancy luxury car while children are starving in the northeastern part of the country um, or malnourished or can't get edu basic education. Um, I actually visited North Korea once in 2012, and um, one of the sort of most troubling images from that trip was of a child at a, a um, nursery school, like a preschool, who had an, an untreated ear infection and he had pus coming out of his ear. Um, and it, was, it, it looked like there were no antibiotics that had been available or applied to treat that ear infection. And, um, you know, when I think about that now as the mother of, of two relatively young kids, um, you know, the, the, the idea that, that you would let something like that go untreated is, is wow regime elites are living in luxury is, is just appalling um, to me and, and incredibly hard to, to grapple with as a, as a parent. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've been an advocate for a long time of being really hard line about constricting North Korea's illicit activity and saying, nope, look, you got to engage with the world on normal terms. Um, you don't get to sell drugs to our teenagers in Japan or our allies in South Korea and, and then turn around and, um, you know, and profit from that. Um, you know, I think, um, so, so my own sense is that uh, the second summit in particular um, 
probably not something I would have done. Um, I think it was possibly worth experimenting and saying, okay, all the power in the system flows from Kim Jong-un. We're going to try one, you know, leader level summit to see if we can make a breakthrough. But I also think, you know, that's not, um, you wouldn't do that instead of having this really tough pressure. You do it at the same time, right? So um, in the same way that combatants on a battlefield sometimes have talks while they're still fighting, um, I think that you can have a conversation simply to make the terms clear while you are engaged in an active pressure campaign to try to normalize some of North Korea's behavior. Um, so that's my sense of sort of where diplomacy fits, right? It's a tool and we should, we, we should do it on our terms. Um, it's not in and of itself necessarily a concession, but that also doesn't mean that it has to be FaceTime with, you know, the United States president and the authority of a, of a presidential office. Um, and, and then I think, you know, on the, the, the question of North Korea's nuclear and missile program, um, you know, my, my concern at this point is that North Korea has been very clear that it is simply unwilling to denuclearize. Its missile and nuclear programs have continued to grow. Um, and so I think, you know, we need to absolutely keep up the, the pressure, but we also need to make sure that our deterrent capabilities um, to protect the United States homeland and to protect not just our allies in South Korea, but the something like you know 300,000 Americans who are in South Korea on any given day. Um, that's like the size of St. Louis, right? Um, uh, so I would want to see, you know, really tough conversations, and I've seen some good proposals put forth, including by some some conservative folks. I can send you the references if you want to share them with listeners after the after we, we end our discussion. Um, but, you know, I've seen some good proposals for really augmenting and strengthening the United States deterrent capabilities in order to deal with this really intransigent threat from North Korea um, that, that now has lasted for years. Um, and I think we've, I think we've got to um, confront the reality of that, that threat because it is dangerous and it is a regime that is not uh, really interested in finding much common ground with the U.S. Um, and I think we've got to be very realistic about how threatening that is to the U.S. and what we need to do to counter it. Mm-hmm. No, and that issue in particular with North Korea, I, I feel like it's often politicized and it's more about who is doing something as opposed to what's being done. And I think there should be a pretty consistent position on having a strong stance against them regardless. You know, this should be an issue that's just national security based, but it's often not treated that way. Um, so with North Korea and I guess East Asia in general, uh, what do you think the wisest course of action would be for the U.S. going forward in terms of how we handle the growing escalation in that in that region in general, is it enough just to have that increased naval power we've had there? I mean, what what would you suggest or what do you think should happen? Well, certainly support some of those um, some of those increases and definitely increase attention to the Indo-Pacific. It is so vital to the economic security of the United States and the, the national security of the United States that we need a really robust strategy and a lot of attention because there are so many different challenges that 
uh, on any given day, it can be hard to keep up just with the news about what's unfolding in that, that part of the world. Um, I think we need to have really um, active conversations and cooperation with our allies, and we need to be willing to update what we're doing um, to figure out, do we need to do more exercises? Do we need to do a different type of exercise? Do we need, you know, a different intelligence sharing agreement? Um, so, you know, I was, I was encouraged to see, um, you know, this most recent discussion between the United States and Australia um, that took place just in the last week or two. Um, about, uh, you know, shared um, goals and, you know, cooperate, security cooperation in, in the Indo-Pacific. I think that's, that's a really important piece. Um, and then the other piece I think we need to be careful about is to look at how um, China and Asia fit into our global strategy. Because um, there are cases where I think the United States could get support from Europe and support from other partners in other parts of the world. Um, and we know that one of the approaches that China, for example, takes is um, to like, it likes to do things bilaterally. Because in any head-to-head, -head, um, you know, thinking about China talking bilaterally with just South Korea or just the Philippines, China is a much more powerful actor, and it has a lot of negotiating weight. Um, so one of the ways to counter that is to cooperate with our allies in Asia, but also our allies in Europe when they have common interests and, um, and use that to counter, you know, this, this growing um, weight that the PRC carries in, in conversation. Um, but to do that, I think we need to be really careful about how those global efforts connect to what we're doing in the Asia Pacific itself. Um, so the best example, that sounds kind of vague, but, but let me give you an example. I think, um, you know, China is exporting surveillance technology all over the world. There are real concerns about data security and privacy, about tech competition, and about the impact on the quality of democracy around the world with this technology getting exported uh, into a ton of places. Um, and I, I think that um, it would be useful to have a, a conversation and try to set global standards um, with Europe, with Asian democracies, and try to lock in a set of standards that are compatible with civil liberties, data security, privacy, um, other, rather than letting China um, intervene and sort of write the rules. But unless the United States coordinates that effort, I'm, I'm worried that a disaggregated approach would really play to China's interest. Um, and that's not what I think we want standards on, for example, facial recognition to look like in 20 years. Right? We, we don't want Chinese tech companies writing the, the rules for Americans around the world about what happens to their, their face and their biometric data. Um, so that's a case where I think we need to put China really in a, a global context and use all of the tools that we have in terms of our global foreign policy to address these challenges. Now, do you have any personal goals that you ever want to be involved in making this sort of policy directly, whether it's you know, national security advisor or something grandiose on that scale? It's definitely something that, that I've thought about. I've had some great role models um, in uh, when I was in, in college and grad school and, um, and even now at, at the University of Texas who have 
you know, taken a lead from their academic work, gone to make a contribution to national security by serving, you know, in some capacity, and then come back and continue teaching and doing research. And um, right now I have young children, and so my um, my life is organized in such a way that, you know, I want to be with them a, a lot. And um, academia is a, a great way to contribute while still being a, a really present mom uh, to, to young children. They're four and six. Um, but at some point, you know, if the opportunity came up, that would definitely be something that, that I'd be interested in. Um, it'll just have to be the, the right role at the right time. And, um, I, you know, I'd want to make sure that I really have something to contribute and that it, it, it would make a difference to be there. So, um, yeah, at some point, that would be great. For now, I feel like um, there's also a real role for academic research that really tries to understand how the Chinese political system is changing and thinks through how that affects American interests. Um, so I, I, I feel pretty fortunate that my, my job right now gives me a chance to contribute in a way that, that works for me. Generally or unfortunately, I don't think these problems are going away anytime soon. So uh, there's probably... It doesn't look like that. it. <laughs> um, Neither North Korea nor China appear to be going anywhere. In the foreseeable no, future. Doesn't seem like it. Um, so uh, before we wrap it up, I know you're working on some research projects. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that or anything else you have coming up? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the, the projects that I'm working on now is actually a book about how China's approach to internal security and po policing and, and law enforcement, um, both kind of everyday crime and political um, policing, has worked. Um, since Xi Jinping um, took power. And so that's, that's one of the first projects, is trying to explain how that part of China's domestic politics has changed and, and why that affects you know, the rest of us in the world today. Um, the other project is mostly focused on North Korea, and it actually uses North Korea as a way of looking at how um, authoritarian states manage not only stuff inside their borders, um, but their diaspora population. So in many cases, you know, people who leave um, form communities abroad and become significant, you know, advocates for um, better human rights or democratization in their homeland. Um, and so I'm interested in, you know, under what circumstances those groups form um, and how effective they are, because I think that, you know, if you look at what China has done with overseas Chinese populations, or you look at how North Korea talks about defectors, um, that authoritarian regimes actually pay a lot of attention to those groups abroad. And I don't think we really understand why or how they try to interfere with and control them. So that's the other big project I'm, I'm working on. Um, and uh, it's, uh, there's definitely more than enough out there on both of those topics to keep me busy, for better or for worse. Um, great. Well, that does sound interesting. And thanks uh, again for coming on. It was a uh, good conversation. Thanks so much. I appreciate the chance to talk with you. Great. Thanks a lot.